Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and joining me here today is Carlos, founder and CEO of Luco. Today, we're going to discuss his journey from going from being a scientist to Series A. Um, but first of all, Carlos, can you give us an elevator pitch of Luco? Uh, sure. So we are a medical device startup that came out from MIT uh, with a new technology that can measure white blood cells through the skin. So that means that we don't need a blood sample. The technology is based on microscopy, so we are able to take pictures through the skin for one minute, analyze them with AI and make a measurement. And our first uh, use case is to monitor patients undergoing um, chemotherapy as a way to improve their clinical outcomes and avoid hospital readmissions. Awesome. And what uh, led you to build this company? You know, because you were previously a researcher. That's correct. I mean, I was trained as an engineer, and after that, I did a PhD on um, uh, computer vision applied to healthcare images. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it would be cool to apply my engineering skills to uh, healthcare. I thought that was particularly yeah. motivating. Um, so during my PhD, I developed a bunch of AI algorithms to kind of automatically analyze uh, CT scans of the heart and things like that, yeah. and aid the clinicians on diagnosis. And, uh, but after I finished my PhD, I was a little bit disillusioned because uh, I had like completed my research, uh, done my papers, uh, published mm. some good journals. But then uh, whether that was really gonna change the way patients were treated was maybe a little bit unclear. Um, and that was not the reason why I, you know, entered like healthcare. So I got selected at that point after my PhD to a postdoctoral program at MIT. Mm -hmm. And that program was very exciting. It was about like um, first identifying unmet medical needs and then developing new technologies that would be well positioned to solve them. So from the beginning, the impact of your work is very clear. Yeah. Um, so at that point, we had to define new projects from scratch. And I, you know, at the time, I had um, one of my closest friends from Madrid actually was undergoing uh, cancer chemotherapy. He was diagnosed with lymphoma. So I got to experience a little bit firsthand some of the challenges that these patients face. And I remember very clearly that he was always very worried about, you know, going out or spending time with us because, you know, chemotherapy was affecting his white blood cells and he was mm -hmm. like immunocompromised and yeah. that could lead to a life-threatening infection. Um, so, so he could only go out if his white blood cell count was above a certain That's correct. Or, but the problem is that these patients in between chemotherapy cycles, when they are at home, they don't really know how yeah. high or how low their white blood cells are. So they always have to be kind of I extra see. careful. And that's an extra worry, I guess, for these patients on top of everything that they are going through. Because I'd need to do a blood test right now to find out my white blood cell count. That's correct. So right now the uh, standard mm -hmm. of care Current technologies you require to, you know, you need to go to the clinic yeah. and get a blood sample, and obviously it's not possible to do that every mm -hmm. day. You also don't want to be bringing yeah. cancer patients or chemotherapy back to the clinic because you are potentially exposing them to infections as well in yeah. that setting. So I thought that that was a really interesting, you know, problem. Uh, because my only solution right now would be to stay at home. That's correct. I mean, yeah. uh, and, and currently these patients are actually uh, instructed to take their temperature every day. Uh, so mm. they monitor, you know, they have to just use a thermometer 
Yeah. And if they have a fever, that would be a sign of infection. At that point, they need to report to the emergency room immediately because it could be life-threatening for them. So it's almost like a downstream symptom, That's basically. correct. But yeah. Because by the time the fever appears, then that's already too late. The, you know, the yeah. patients have already developed the infection. They need to go to the emergency room. The, you know, they need to be sometimes hospitalized for a week. That yeah. has like an impact on their clinical outcomes. Their chemotherapy needs to be discontinued for a couple of weeks, and that's you know worse for their like um, potential um, uh, you know uh, therapeutic effects of the treatment. So all of that is a major problem, and I guess that uh, when when I started to pitch this problem um, to, to, mm. to at MIT, I found out that this was not a problem that was you know only for Miguel for my friend. But actually, kind of millions of mm. cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy follow that, that uh, same problem. Miguel, yeah. by the way, he was fine eventually, you know, so he you know, yeah. went through chemotherapy and, you know, they got it at a very early yeah. stage. So he's like uh, cancer free today. But obviously, millions of other patients face these challenges every day. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the problem that we decided to tackle. Um, and since the biggest limitation is that now you need to kind of take this blood sample and you cannot measure every day we decided that um, uh, we would come up with a new technology to do all of this completely non-invasively. Mm. So in the same way that diabetics are monitored for their glucose levels every day, these patients can could check their white blood cell levels every day. It's just that they don't even need to prick their finger. We do it completely non-invasively. Um, so it's basically a device that uses lasers, right? We don't use lasers, we use just LED illumination. Uh, okay. So we use visible light. Um, mm -hmm. And patients, it's very simple. You know, patients, they just need to insert the finger in our device for one minute. Mm -hmm. And we take these microscopy videos. We are able to see through the skin and we can see the white blood cell flowing through very tiny and superficial capillaries. Yeah. Uh, and we can actually see the white blood cells passing in vivo. Um, so mm -hmm. we have these very cool images that then we can use kind of computer vision or AI algorithms to analyze in order to make a measurement. Um, yeah, so, you know, pretty simple, no lasers. Um, so that's also really good for us because it means that all of our clinical studies are considered, are considered to be non-significant risk for yeah. the patients. Um, so also that facilitates a lot for us to get the technology validated. Um, and right now, uh, is the idea that the patient would acquire your machine and have it at their house? Uh, our value proposition, well, we have a value proposition for patients, obviously, because they will get like better, better treatment and better outcomes and better quality of life, mm -hmm. uh, but also a huge value proposition in terms of the economic buyer uh, to the healthcare insurance companies. Yeah. Because one in every six uh, cancer patients end up being hospitalized because of one of the infections that mm -hmm. I described. Each of those hospitalizations is a $46,000 event in the US. So in the U.S. alone, every mm -hmm. year, uh, $6 billion are spent on this problem. Um, yeah. By monitoring the patients more frequently every day, um, we can detect those that are at risk, and you know, the care team can deploy preventive treatment. And according to our estimates, that could reduce 50% of those hospital readmissions. So we could be saving mm -hmm. $3 billion to the U.S. Uh, healthcare system alone, and obviously massively improve the outcomes for patients. Yeah. Um, so the economic buyer would be the insurance companies, um, mm -hmm. Uh, because, you know, by monitoring these patients, they are saving a bunch of costs down the mm -hmm. road. And uh, the patients, they only need to use the device for the duration of their treatment. So it's typically five to six months. Mm -hmm. uh, and after that, the device can be repurposed and rolled out yeah. to a new patient. 
That's cool. And um, how long have you been working on this so far? Yeah, so the project started in 2014, 2015, when we were at MIT. Uh, mm -hmm. We started from the ideation stage, as I mentioned. Uh, we started yeah. doing kind of our first prototypes and, and uh, clinical studies or like in human yeah. testing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we s it uh, started as an academic project yeah. um, or scientific project um, and, uh, until we got kind of a first working prototype and a first proof of principle in humans. So we did that collaboration with uh, Mass General Hospital and also Hospital La Paz in Madrid. Uh, we recruited 45 cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy with mm. our prototype. That was a very early prototype, you know, with like cables coming yeah. out of it and we had to manually yeah. operate it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we demonstrated that the technology could work and we made a couple of uh, yeah. uh, scientific publications. And that was the moment where the, we, you know, we, we established a first proof of, of principle mm -hmm. that we thought about like spinning out. So we left MIT in 2018. Uh, we raised our first round of financing in 2019. Uh, since then, we have been working on the final um, commercial product. And now we are very close to you know, start the, f the final clinical trials for regulatory approval. Yeah. Uh, and product launch. So very exciting moment of the company at the moment. Um, and every time you've redeveloped the product, do you need to start from zero in clinical research? You don't need to start from zero. Obviously, you have a lot of uh, evidence that you build over time. Um, but um, I mean, you need to kind of iteratively test the product. Um, so we did, mm. I mean, and just to maybe explain the phases that we went through, uh, yeah. we, we did our proof of concept that I just mentioned, or what we call our phase one. Mm -hmm. That would be the equivalent for drug development. Uh, and that was very early prototype, 45 patients, just to demonstrate the technology could potentially work. Yeah. Um, after that, we, wor we um, work on product development, uh, um, you know, towards the commercial unit. And it was very important mm -hmm. for our use case that patients are able to use this product and supervise them um, from home. Um, yeah. So we went through iteratively through different like design iterations where we would basically work on an improved prototype, mm -hmm. test it on 30 patients just to see how they were doing. These patients were naive to the device, so they have yeah. never used it before. And then they were, you know, kind of received basic training for five minutes. Mm -hmm. We have like a brochure explaining how to use the device. And then they are left alone in a home environment uh, to mm -hmm. test it. And obviously there would be a bunch of things that wouldn't work um, and a lot of design errors. So then we would basically, after that iteration of uh, testing, we would go back, work on improving those design errors and then roll yeah. it back again. Uh, so we did this iteratively and we recruited up to 150 patients. Mm -hmm. until we got to a final design that was really robust and that actually got like really good uh, usability scores for, for patients. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, we published those results as well. So now we have um, a device that is ranked by, by patients to be among the top 10% of products by usability. Yeah. Um, and that, that was kind of the completion of our phase two. So that now we are ready to do the final clinical trial, and that's the study that we need to present to the regulatory agency, to the drug agency, yeah. in order to get approval and start commercializing. So I that see. would be our phase three, just yeah. to, go, to you know go through the, I guess, like full cycle. Yeah, I see. You've been working on this for like nearly nine years now. It's coming up to that, yes. Uh, the typical cycle for medical technologies is approximately 10 years from yeah. ideation to market. So we are kind of on track with the average industry. Yeah. And um, 
I guess you've you've probably like learned a lot in the last nine years. Um, what's been like the the biggest change for you, or if you can remember, like what was like the biggest shift? Um, you know, from from going uh, being an academic into into entering the commercial space as a CEO founder. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, one of the biggest changes it was that mm -hmm. you know even to realize that entrepreneurship was a, even a career option for me, right? Because yeah. uh, I mean, when I moved to MIT, I was um, supposed to be there for a two-year fellowship mm. and I guess that my plan at the moment was you know complete the fellowship then try to apply for professorship positions stay in academia yeah um, and again I didn't know that for a PhD like being mm. an entrepreneur or a co-founder of a startup was even a career possible career option yeah uh, and that's something that I really learned at MIT I mean there is a very rich entrepreneurial and innovation ecosystem and mm. there is a lot of programs that are focused on uh, kind of helping scientists uh, kind of translate their innovations and their research mm -hmm. into innovative products. And I th that was very attractive for, uh, to me for the reason that I mentioned before, right? That I mm -hmm. thought that this is really the opportunity uh, to translate the work that I'm doing and really kind of make sure that patients can use it and benefit from it, uh, right? And have some impact. So, which was the whole reason why I, you know, focus on bi the biomedical space to, uh, to start with. Mm -hmm. So that was like very motivating to me. And I guess that's why I started considering like changing, uh, you know, paths. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was really motivating is that it's always a learning experience. It's never, you know, it's never boring uh, because obviously you have to learn a lot of new skills. Yeah. I have never done a, you know, elevator pitch. I have never <laughs> prepared a business yeah. plan. I have never like presented yeah. uh, like asked for funds or raise uh, funds from investors. I had never like recruited team members. I had so there were a lot of like first uh, yeah. time experiences, and you know that's always very exciting. You know, mm. a, a little bit terrifying, but <laughs> you learn as you go. And uh, probably that was kind of the biggest change for me, um, going from being just a pure scientist to being an entrepreneur. And along yeah. the way, I had obviously a lot of support. I mean, it of, it's often time said that it takes a village. Um, so through these programs at MIT, you get connected with a lot of mentors that have mm -hmm. industry experience with other founders, uh, with business students uh, that can maybe th th those were actually really important interactions at the beginning because um, you get the scientists working on their new technology and the business students that can kind of look at the financial and commercial impact. And we did a lot of pitch competitions and business plan competitions and we did very well. And that was all part of kind of the learning process and the transformation from being a scientist into a first-time founder. And um, how many rounds have you raised now? Because you just raised a Series A, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, how many rounds has it been now? We have raised two rounds. We did okay. raise the first round in 2019. That yeah. was a seed round of $2 million. Mm -hmm. um, and that was focused on completing the product development that I just mentioned, apart from some customer mm -hmm. discovery. Um, and last September we closed our CSA for $5 million and you know the big milestone for us in this round is to um, kind of complete the clinical trials for regulatory approval and yeah. be, be ready for product launch. In, the, in between we have also been supported by a lot of non-doubt funding mm -hmm. and that's something that we have been quite successful at doing. And I think that's like a, an aspect where we have been able to leverage our kind of scientific education. Yeah. Uh, because all of these non-dilutive funding support kind of research and development for new innovative mm. technologies. In the US, there is this program called uh, SBIR, which stands for Small Business and Innovation Research. So those are grants from the National Institute of Health 
that uh, support the development of new products that can positively impact the health of mm -hmm. you know American citizens. And then Europe has also a very similar program called SME. Uh, and those programs are very much like scientific grants. You know, you have to kind of submit mm -hmm. a proposal. They are very competitive. Uh, I think mm -hmm. approximately only one in ten or less of the proposals get funded. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's also where our kind of scientific training was really helpful, and we were able yeah. to put together kind of very compelling kind of proposals and get some additional su non-dilutive support from those from those programs. That has also been very instrumental to our uh, progress. And um, what's been the most challenging thing in terms of raising, um, right? And I, I know that um, Series A is usually a very big barrier to a lot of startups, um, and most startups don't make it to Series A, right? Um, what was the biggest challenge of, of managing that process? And um, what were the key metrics you needed to show? Because I'm guessing revenue does not really matter in this situation. Yeah, uh, so for the, you are right. I mean, we are, we are not, you know, we are not uh, producing revenue yet. We are in the research and development stage. I'm um, getting mm -hmm. the product validated and uh, commercialized at the moment. Um, so I guess the main metrics for our CDSA was like, I mean, does the technology work from the technical mm -hmm. side, right? Uh, so obviously having the kind of the clinical data from the, you know, patients and the studies that I just mentioned that was very important to convince like mm -hmm. uh, investors that we have the risk to a significant degree kind of the technical yeah. uh, side of things. Um, I guess the other metric was to have a very compelling kind of clinical and regulatory plan. Obviously yeah. we, we are a regulated product and we need to get approval by FDA and we need to have a convincing plan on how to go about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for, for that purpose, we completed uh, what is called an FDA pre-submission, where you mm -hmm. sit down with the FDA and you discuss kind of the data and the endpoints that they want to see for approval. Yeah. Um, so we got that, you know, kind of agreed and negotiated with the FDA. Um, so then we had kind of very clear uh, roadmap of, you know, how mm -hmm. many patients we need to recruit, what is going to be our indication for use, what are the endpoints that we need to meet, in our preliminary data, we were showing that we were actually kind of meeting those endpoints already. So yeah. that was like a very convincing argument for investors. So that was on the scientific, technical, clinical side. Then obviously you need a bunch of um, um, work or metrics as well on the commercial side. So obviously you need to know kind of, obviously your total addressable market and mm. your go-to-market strategy particularly. Um, so for that, yeah. Uh, for that, we have we had completed some uh, kind of market access work where we look mm. at the kind of reimbursement options uh, because many many technologies or so many medical technologies get approved by the FDA and they show that they work. Yeah. But then there is a different that's the kind of the technical and clinical risk. But then you have the the commercial risk of mm -hmm. who is going to actually pay for it. Um, so we did some work, particularly through customer interviews. We completed more than 100 customer interviews with our yeah. uh, kind of economic buyers. And we had a lot of traction in the form of letters of support from, uh, you know, pharma companies and hospital groups that are, you know, willing to adopt the technology that, you know, uh, kind of uh, acknowledge that this is a kind of one of the top three or uh, mm -hmm. top of mind kind of uh, pain point for them. Uh, and those were also kind of very important pieces of evidence that we needed to uh, yeah. use to persuade the investors. 
Um, the other thing that the investors also really want to, wanted to was talk to our key opinion leaders. Yeah. Um, so we have very, some very supportive, uh, you know, oncologists and hematologists that we are working with. Uh, that they experience this this pain firsthand, mm -hmm. and uh, they have had like patients that are you know mm. have unfortunately died sometimes because of yeah. you know this this condition, um, and they they you know uh, they have been collaborating with us, and they have become our kind of uh, clinical advisors, and uh, having kind of those clinicians uh, kind of speak vividly yeah. about the problem to investors that was also a really uh, important uh, component for us. How is the seed raise different to Series A? Because I've heard that um, there are less investors at Series A, right? Uh, we didn't. We didn't feel. I didn't feel that way. Uh, for me, for instance, I think the seed round was more difficult to raise than the mm. Series A. But it was mostly also because we were like less experienced, maybe, and we had less network and less connection, mm. right? Because by the time you get to your Series A, we already have our seed investors. They and can they obviously can connect you. they can connect you to other investors. Yeah. They can like obviously you can uh, they can coach you mm. in how to you know prepare your pitch, how you prepare your budget, how yeah. you know prepare a compelling kind of a story. Um, we had done already like a race before, so we have been through the process. Yeah. Um, and the seed round really we were kind of maybe more of uh, obviously at, by the time we got to the series A also mm. the project had less risk, so I, uh, I think yeah. that that's also another maybe important aspect. But when we were at the seed stage, we were just these like PhD students that had like <laughs> no business experience. Yeah. So I think, and I think that was like really a deal breaker for many investors, mm. right? That they they wanted to see some gray hair or whatnot, and maybe we didn't have it. Yeah. And uh, kind of fighting the notion that we are just scientists that don't know anything about like commercializing and you know uh, mm. young and experienced like first time founders like an unknown entity. I think that was like a ha tough uh, perception to overcome. Yeah. Uh, um, and also, again, like we, it was the first time we were doing this, so we didn't have a process. And I think that was a big learning for me that I applied to the Series what, A. What is the process to raise a Series A? Yeah, because I mean, for the seed, I think we did it wrong in the yeah. sense that uh, we were trying to do everything at once. You know, uh, we mm -hmm. were trying to raise the funds and then like push the uh, product development and push mm -hmm. the clinical work. And uh, when you are doing all of these things in parallel, it means that you cannot devote your full attention to fundraising. And that's and a full-time job. Yeah. And then that means that drags out the conversations, right? Because you are not like fully yeah. devoted to it. Um, so you you would say do um, fundraising sprint? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because we didn't do that the first time. And also, what mm -hmm. you is is very important in order to create the FOMO, right? Or, or competitive mm -hmm. kind of uh, term sheets uh, from from investors. Because when we did it the first time, again, it was like we were having some conversations with some investors, and yeah. then with some others like three months later. And uh, that means that by the time like you get an investor like through due diligence and to the point where they are like uh, the only one. they are the only ones because mm. it's like asynchronous, right? And what you really want to do is like okay, you do your product development, regulatory, whatever milestones you need to accomplish, you get them done, and when you feel you have enough, uh, then you do this sprint yeah. where you start. And we were very disciplined the second time, uh, so we actually mm. took it as a sales process, and we use a you know CRM tool. Really? Yeah, and we mm. did our whole like pipeline and funnel of the different stages, right? I think we divided the fundraising process in five different stages. So mm. we started by creating a kind of target list of investors that we yeah. wanted to contact, and we have some qualifying criteria. Yeah. So the criteria, we wanted investors that were experienced in healthcare, that could write like check sizes, you know, around the amounts that we needed. 
and that had like other portfolio companies that uh, were similar to us. So those are yeah. were a little bit the qualifying criteria, and I think we came up with maybe 150 or 200 like potential uh, targets. Mm. And then after that, uh, that was the first stage. After that, it's a matter of like getting in touch with those investors, and for that you use your yeah. you know, connections, your network, called outreach. Where uh, you go to conferences, pitch competitions, whatever way you can yeah. <laughs> get exposed to them. Uh, and obviously, the goal of that first interaction is then like getting a second call. Mm. So then we had, you know, like the ones that we have contacted and had the first conversation with. The, I th and I think out of the 150, maybe we were able to contact maybe 120 of those in the list. Uh, mm -hmm. Out of those 120, maybe 60 progressed to the second call stage. Out of those 60, maybe... 60 calls? Uh, 60 yeah. second calls, 60. <laughs> <laughs> but 120 yeah. like first calls or something. Oh, gosh, yeah. And out of those 60 second calls, maybe the next stage in the funnel was the, uh, the due diligence. So maybe 15 of them like uh, kind of um, started due diligence. Yeah. And then after that, we got like two or three different like uh, term sheets at the end of the day. And we ended up accepting one. So that was the funnel. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this game, this time we did it in a more, like, much it more discipline. It like a, a way more structured approach. Yes. Than the first time, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So in a sense, again, like, I yeah. think that that facilitated things for us a little bit because we had mm. a better, better pro uh, process, uh, more connections, uh, more experience, yeah. and, uh, and also less risk in the company. Uh, so mm. I thought that actually the seed round was maybe the hardest uh, for us. Interesting. And in terms of just in general, like with your experience now being run the company for nine years, what do you think is the number one thing uh, founder CEO should do? And um, can you share a story of what led you to learn that lesson? Yeah, so I think that as a founder CEO, you have like three main responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. or three things that you should always be doing, right? Uh, so the number yeah. one is... Um, you never you always ha you have to make sure that you the company never runs out of money right <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's number one number two is that uh, i guess like team building that you have like the right talent in your in the company yeah. to to execute your plan and then number three is just like setting the vision you know making sure that everybody in the team kind of knows mm -hmm. where we are headed and where are kind of the milestones that we need to accomplish and yeah. um, and i think those are really just the three responsibilities mm. for 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 a ceo uh, I, mean, I will focus maybe on one of them, the team, the team part. I mean, your question was what a CEO should do. So building yeah. a kind of an A team is probably pretty, pretty high up there. And delegating, which is also very important and very tough to do at the beginning, uh, yeah. at least for me, you know. Uh, I mean, and in our case, this was um, uh, my, my other three co-founders. We were all uh, scientists mm. at MIT. We started this project together. Yeah. Uh, they are like brilliant. Uh, people and uh, really, you know, grateful that they decided to uh, continue engaging this project because, yeah. you know, they could be doing anything they wanted in life, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in order to keep them, to keep these very, you know, brilliant people motivated, it's very yeah. important to uh, empower them mm -hmm. and like trust them, right? So I think that one thing that uh, CEOs should do is establish kind of different and clear areas of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, so each of the founders, we have kind of our own like area of expertise. Yeah. Ian Butterworth is he's our chief technology officer. He is you know responsible for all device related things. Uh, Aurelian Bucar, he's our chief data mm. scientist. He's uh, he uh, kind of leads the development of the software. 
Álvaro Sánchez, que es el Chief Medical Officer, que es en charge of our clinical and regulatory process, y, you know, yeah. as I said, I'm kind of doing the fundraising and, you know, team building, etc., what I just mentioned. And uh, I think that sometimes you have the temptation to kind of like, oh, uh, the product development is not going well, uh, let me roll up my sleeves and get in there, you know. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that you can, yeah. he you can help, but you also need to, again, empower the yes, yeah. uh, pe key people in your team and also trust mm. that they will, uh, get it done. they will get it done. And, you know, sometimes they will get it done in different ways to maybe how you think yeah. things should be uh, done, but uh, that's all right. And letting mm. go of that, I think, is very important. I think what is important is, again, like setting the vision, no? It's like maybe setting kind of some quarterly mm. milestones or yearly milestones. Uh, you have your KPIs and all of your OKRs and all of, all of, the stu all of, all of that <laughs> stuff. And just yeah. like holding people accountable to those uh, milestones, uh, but otherwise letting them kind of drive. Um, and I yeah. think that's like very important. The other thing that maybe was also very important for us in terms of team building was also uh, kind of communicating the vision mm. and the impact. And I think that's a kind of a major uh, component for us to be able to being able to recruit talent. Um, because obviously we cannot compete with corporate <laughs> in terms of yeah. salaries or benefits. Uh, but we really can, we have a very important mission, right? Mm. Where people through their work have the possibility to impact the life of millions of cancer patients. Yeah. And for many of us in the teams, you know, we all have like uh, either relatives or friends that have gone through uh, cancer chemotherapy. And I think that, um, uh, you know, that's a very important aspect why people kind of chooses to join our team because they feel that through their work, they can make really, they can really a make difference. a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the number one thing you would tell a founder CEO not to do? And do you have a story of how you learned not to do something? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, I mean, as I said before, I may, maybe already told the story, uh, not to, for the fundraising, you know, like mm -hmm. uh, not, do not fundraise at the same time that you are doing yeah. like 20 other things and just really focus on doing like a, like a sprint where that's like your full-time job or at least the full-time job of, of one person in the team. Yeah. Um, And as I said, I think that was uh, made, made it like much harder for us in this in the seed round. And so mm -hmm. that's something that, that, that definitely would recommend other founders to do as well. So to stay focused on the fundraise if you're fundraising. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's Either right. raise or don't raise. Yes. But <laughs> don't do it like half-heartedly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Um, and just a final question from me. Um, what is the number one impact you want to leave on the world with Luco? Yeah, so I mean, as I was saying with Luco, um, we have the impact, the possibility to impact and really change the way like of, that millions of uh, cancer patients are being treated and improve uh, their clinical outcomes. Um, so I really hope that, you know, uh, we get to commercialize this, this product and uh, kind of improve the lives for, the, for those patients. Just to go a little bit through the numbers, In the U.S. every year, 850,000 patients start chemotherapy treatments. 140,000 of them end up hospitalized because they develop an infection due to low white blood cells. And that's something that we can really uh, cut by half. So we could be avoiding 70,000 hospitalizations a year in the U.S., uh, save north of 5,000 lives. And that's really the clinical impact. That's kind of one of the main drivers for, for us and for the team. Uh, then beyond that, uh, I guess the grander vision for Luco is that obviously we are focused on 
this unmet need for cancer patients and as a welfare product, but there are many other uh, therapies and populations, uh, immunocompromised populations, that can also benefit from an uh, increased monitoring of their weakened immune system. So we plan to, uh, you know, start by helping cancer patients on chemotherapy and then go beyond that. And that's uh, part of the impact that we hope to accomplish with LUCO. So in addition to the Health Creators community, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our educational tracks, vendor selection tools, CRO databases, and even which investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to NewRoot for clinical development and a bunch of other resources you need to build better companies in healthcare.